Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that does whatever a spider can. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we are working our way through the friendly, the neighborhood, and the Spider-Man of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Spider-Man Homecoming. All right, Lonnie, so for these four color facts, I've decided to do a deep and in-depth look at the step-by-step process that Spider-Man became Spider-Man. In other words, (laughs) I'm gonna talk for hours about his origin because nobody knows what it is. It's not in this movie, so how can anyone know? And this is the point when I better tell our listeners I'm totally kidding. (laughs) Everybody knows, yes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. The only the only dead parents we've seen more often are Bruce Wayne's. <laughs> right. and, and it is a tight fucking race. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's fine. I'm not doing that. Everybody stand down. Go back to condition yellow. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you about the origin. But... But I am going to tell you a little bit about the drift between this conception of young, brand new to the game Spider-Man and the initial conception by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko in Mm -hmm. 1962. So Lee and Ditko actually tossed off the origin of Spider-Man in Amazing Fantasy number 15. And if you ever go and read that story, it looks more like a Twilight Zone story than anything else. Mm -hmm. It's almost a horror story that just happens to have some spandex in it. You've got a put-upon kid that comes into great power. He decides to live his best life for 10 seconds. He (laughs) makes one bad decision, and then karma catches up to him. That's it. Like, that's mm -hmm. the whole story. And it really is one of those, like, here's the setup. Oh, you've got your life's greatest wish. Oh, isn't it great? No, it's terrible. Right? Like, that... The Twilight Zone formula. Mm -hmm. So when the unexpectedly popular Spider-Man got his own book in 1963, it only made sense for those guys to build from what they'd already established, even if that wasn't very much, Mm -hmm. you know? And what they'd mostly established was a disaffected youth who had already lost one set of parents and then through his own inaction caused himself to lose half of his second set. That Peter Parker was angry at the entire goddamn world. And because of his own powerlessness, right, Mm -hmm. at first. And once he had the power, he lived on the brink of taking that anger out on literally whoever was handy. I am completely serious. Oh, God, that's so interesting. I mean, that's such an interesting, there seems to be like so much more kind of darkness and crunch to that idea of Spider-Man than usually what we see. Oh, that's 100%. Like, I was even going to say, does that not sound like the sweet, small cinnamon roll you've come to love in six out of seven Spider-Man movies? Because let me tell you a little bit about Steve Ditko, Mm because that's how we got there. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I haven't really talked much about Steve Ditko. I only mentioned him briefly because he co-created Doctor Strange, Mm -hmm. but I didn't talk about him personally. Mm -hmm. There is a ton that I could say about him. He was a phenomenal talent. Mm -hmm. But to me, the most salient bit is that he became a staunch objectivist and an acolyte of Ayn Rand, Uh, which I think led to a lot of pent up anger and feelings that the world was against him. Mm -hmm. 
And when you combine that with a feud between Ditko and Lee that kept them from ever actually interacting, despite the fact that they worked on the amazing Spider-Man comic oh book God. together, <laughs> wow. you wind up with a guy who never feels like he's getting a fair shake. Wow. So Ditko's art style has been described as emphasizing anxiety and mood. Mm-hmm. And you can see this all through Spider-Man. He drew Spider-Man as flexible, but not in the way that we've come to expect, which is kind of like super yoga. Right. <laughs> Ditko's Spider-Man was almost like triple jointed. He would oh. twist himself into positions that were uncomfortable looking and vaguely off-putting. Oh, interesting. Peter's face, when unmasked, was often either a picture of rage or despair with very little in between. Wow. As Spider-Man, he was cocky and a wise-ass right up until he ran literally into any snagger defeat, at which point he became a whiny quitter. You know, like an actual (laughs) 15-year-old. You know, except for, as mentioned in this film, a 15-year-old who can stop a bus with his bare hands. That is a horror movie waiting to happen. Wow, this is a real dark side to Spider-Man. I kind of like it. The thing is, all these pieces are also here in this movie. They just decide not to do the same things with them, Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the ability to take the same puzzle pieces and put them together in a different picture is one of the things I really like about adapting these characters into different areas and molds. And to be fair, this had already kind of been done, you know, Mm -hmm. with Raimi. Uh, We drifted away from this very angry Spider-Man for a while. But, Mm -hmm. you know, clearly this movie is the direct opposite okay Mm -hmm. and i can show this by giving you some examples from the first issue of amazing spider-man this is one issue just roll with me here (laughs) all right we begin with peter lamenting that he and may's money troubles are basically insurmountable Mm -hmm. that without ben they can't make ends meet peter actually overhears may putting off the landlord begging for one more week to pay the rent Mm Peter spends a page or two wondering if he should just use his powers to steal anything not tied down. Mm-hmm. And in the end, a shred of morality combined with concern for what would happen to May if he were ever caught are the only things that stop him. Mm-hmm. Later in the same issue, after Jameson has begun his personal crusade against the wall crawler on the cover of Now magazine, the bugle mm-hmm. came a little bit later. Okay. Peter thinks to himself, and I quote, must I be forced to become what they accuse me of being? Must I really become a menace? Perhaps that is the only course left for me. Wow. The thought about stealing everything in the world and maybe I should just become a menace are literally within 10 pages of one another. No lessons are learned. So interesting, though. You're going to love this bit. Yeah. In the last half of the first issue... Peter decides that the way to get around all this is to become a superhero with a paycheck. So he swings off to try and join the Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. He decides his tryout will be breaking in, picking a fight, and then having his wily way with the FF. (laughs) And honestly, he largely runs circles around them. Wow. The thing says out loud that he pulled this punch because Spider-Man was so skinny, and I Mm -hmm. believe that. But otherwise, Spidey makes everyone else look like jerks. Mm Mm-hmm. Right up until the point that the torch gets mad enough to really burn him down and Sue steps in to slow everyone's roll before (laughs) murders happen. 
Now, once the FF make it clear that they don't take paychecks, which I'm just going to take a little aside here, that is obvious bullshit. They eat and sleep in a building rent free and the torch is always driving sports cars. Okay. So bullshit. <laughs> but once they make it clear to Peter they don't take paychecks, Peter fucks off on his own and declares them all chumps. Mm-hmm. That is all issue number one. <laughs> In issue two, Pete fights the vulture and makes him look like an absolute tool through the power of science. Mm -hmm. And I mention this only because that's another thing from the early days that I kind of miss. Spider-Man had tremendous powers, but he also almost always beat the villain with his brain. Love it. Yeah. Now, you can see how this lines up with some Ditko jazz, though, because Mm -hmm. even though the spider bite was an accident, Peter was already on his way to being a Randian great man. Mm -hmm. Capital G, capital M. Yeah. yeah, Insert jerk off motion here. I'm (laughs) fucking Ayn Rand. (laughs) By issue three, Pete is thinking to himself how bored he is at fighting regular criminals and nobody is a match for him. Mm hmm. Enter Dr. Octopus, who beats Spidey like he owes Oc money, which promptly causes Pete to have an entire breakdown of self-esteem. Peter decides he should quit being Spider-Man because he's a total failure. Let me remind you, he lost one fight, you guys. One. (laughs) That's it. I got to throw in the towel. Page one, I'm invincible. Page 10, I'm a schmuck. That's it. Spider-Man is over. So to sum up, original flavor Peter Parker is full of rage. Mm -hmm. He's volatile. He starts fights with superheroes and barely stops himself from punching his bully's head off every time they get near one another. He's an unbeatable machine one page and a total sobbing failure the next. He's not just broke. He's dirt poor. He has no friends and don't even think about a girl talking to him. (laughs) He is the quintessential angry loner. Oh, God. Writing a kid like this in 2020 would be fucking terrifying. He'd be just another white kid getting radicalized by right-wing incel YouTube, which is why I believe firmly when they decided to make Peter a part of the MCU, they went with Tobey Maguire (laughs) 2.0, probably the right call. I think so. And honestly, it really is fine, even with me, who kind of likes this other take, because I'd probably already gotten the best angry Peter Parker I was ever going to get in the very aptly titled Amazing Mm Spider-Man, because that movie is amazing. Fight me. (laughs) Now, as you hear Lonnie and I discuss some of the missed opportunities in this movie, just imagine how things could have been if they'd hewed even a little bit closer to the original creator's very angry take on the character. Oh, man. Right? Just a little. Not a lot. Just a little. Mostly in the last scene. We'll Mm -hmm. get to it, friends. Yeah. Now, our big villain in this movie is the Vulture. Mm Mm-hmm. The delta between MCU Vulture and comic book Vulture is wide, friends. Very wide. (laughs) Adrian Toomes first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number two, just as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. He is basically an old guy who looks like a buzzard and invented a flying harness that worked on magnetism. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the whole, that's the bit. That's it. (laughs) Spidey lost a small fight with him and then showed up later with a demagnetizer and made him look like a total chump. Just turned it on and his flight harness stopped working. It was great. Beating him with science. Love it. Later on, you come to find out that Toombs is an electrical engineer who had a business partner that embezzled a lot of money from him. Who was the real brains of the operation? Mm -hmm. Toombs burned the place down, took his new designs for a flight harness, and decided to have revenge on the world. Wow. 
Toombs is very old, like elderly. <laughs> he actually relies on the harness for strength and athletic ability. And uh -huh. in fact, because of the magnetic field that the harness creates, he's low-key super strong and super agile when he uses it. I kind of love that. As a story about an older, I mean, you, you don't see, like, you know, people are allowed to get older, you know? Yeah. Like, seriously. So to have somebody who is older and the world is forgetting him now and not right. paying any attention to him to to kind of turn to villainy uh interesting it's an interesting way to go yeah can you imagine i mean it wouldn't have worked for this movie at all and i have no complaints about the vulture in this movie yeah but it would be really fun to have like an old guy who'd made several patents you know that yeah. made him not wealthy but like comfortable mm -hmm. and then somebody steals one probably his best one or whatever and then he's like that's it i'm pulling out this fucking flying harness and i'll show them and all he really wants to do is be remembered right, right. and so he's like if i can't be remembered for good things i will be infamous you know? yeah <laughs> could have been really Really good it could have been interesting could have been an interesting way to go i like what they did but it could have been really interesting yeah yeah there's there's other th th that's another thing kind of like the adaptation of different types of spider-man mm -hmm. we wound up with a great vulture here but right here we just spitballed an equally interesting take you know yeah mm -hmm. now let's talk about some of the lesser villains like the shocker mm-hmm the shocker of the comics is also pretty different. Mm -hmm. uh, for one thing, he built his own gauntlets because although Herman Schultz was a high school dropout, he's also a gifted engineer. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a skill he turned into becoming the world's greatest safe cracker, at least according to him. And mm -hmm. he was, by all accounts, pretty good at it. Yeah. So, you know, his gauntlets also don't actually shock anyone, although they could throw buses around, but without even punching them. Wow. So let me explain how those work. Yeah. So the Shocker's gauntlets project a concentrated blast of compressed air. They don't compress the air. They vibrate. Mm -hmm. Okay. That causes these compressions that, it, that vibrate at extremely high frequencies. And Shocker can effectively throw long range vibrational super powered punches of compressed air and create destructive vibrations in objects ranging from concrete and steel to a human body. Wow. In fact, his gauntlets are so dangerous to a human body, he actually has to wear a very thick, quilted costume to protect himself from the vibrations. That sounds a little bit like Quake. Isn't that a little bit does of what Quake it? does? I, well, uh, the way it's presented in the TV show. Oh, you're right. I have seen that. It is kind of like that. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Quake of the comics, uh, we'll get more to this, is uh, either an Inhuman or a Mutant, depending mm -hmm. on who you're asking. I honestly can't remember. And usually people's powers don't also hurt them, but, yeah. but not always because, you know, X-Men, here's Rogue, here's Cyclops. <laughs> right. so. mm -hmm. uh, yeah, um, I think that his are much worse for him mm -hmm. than hers are for her, you right. know, uh, mm -hmm. which again, he wears this, th I mean, it's thick, like if you look at the drawing, even a flat, you know, mid-70s, uh, so a lot less color and contour and mm -hmm. shading, it's obvious that he's like wearing a big blanket yeah. that's been turned into a supervillain costume. Okay. <laughs> And I just want to point out that Stan Lee made a supervillain based around vibrations and didn't call him the vibrator because, of course, he didn't. Well, but isn't the... Okay. I think, and I'm not sure, but I think that if you look up the shocker, and I'm not recommending that anybody do this on Urban Dictionary, I think there might be something there. Oh, oh no. I'm pointing out that he didn't name him the vibrator, but we all waited around long enough until culture made <laughs> the shocker just as salacious. 
I'm sorry, I didn't read the rest of your paragraph there before I came in with my... No, it's fine, yes. because I think that's amazing. And the fact that you grokked it immediately is exactly my point. You're just like, maybe you should have gone with vibrator, you know? Exactly. Vibrator is as tame compared to what they did with Shocker, right? to the best of my knowledge, yes. Look what 40-plus years of culture moving on from comic book continuity will do to you, yeah, right? Yeah, we're, we're classy on. bitches in this culture, I'll tell you that. <laughs> now, the tinkerer. Mm-hmm. I love the terrible tinkerer. Mm -hmm. Because his name is the Terrible Tinkerer, and his <laughs> real name is Phineas Mason. Ooh, I love it. So many names. <laughs> he also debuted in Amazing Spider-Man number two. Seriously, the first 12 issues of Spider-Man introduced probably the first five or six of his villains that you could name off the top of your head, and <laughs> also some that you can't, like Phineas. <laughs> We originally meet the Tinkerer when a scientist sends intern for the weekend Peter Parker to pick up a radio that Phineas promised to fix for a nickel, which mm -hmm. is apparently still super cheap even in 1964. <laughs> Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> Through various shenanigans involving, among other things, a much more robust early version of the spider sense, mm -hmm. Peter discovers there's a basement of high-tech equipment. There's a dust up and then Spider-Man finds a Phineas mask on the floor and spots a bunch of aliens escaping in a flying saucer. Wow. Now, when next we see the Tinkerer, we find out that this was all a ruse to throw Spidey off the scent. <laughs> he was where he had like a Phineas mask on hand and an alien mask to put on so he could throw one on the ground, put the other one on and jump into the ship with his henchmen who were dressed up like aliens wow. also. Uh, man, that's a forward thinker. I like right. this guy. As you've all often heard me say, the greatest failing of the MCU after the existence of Age of Ultron mm -hmm. is that there aren't nearly enough low rent hoods with freeze rays, vibrating <laughs> gauntlets, rhinoceros suits, etc. Right? In the comics, one of the many answers to this problem is the Tinkerer. It's only right and appropriate that he should appear in a Spider-Man movie since A, he originally appeared in a very early Spider-Man comic, and B, nobody fights more low rent hoods with gimmicks and super science equipment than Spider-Man. Nobody. <laughs> Mm, okay, maybe the Flash does, okay. but honestly, I think this is one race the fastest man alive loses. <laughs> Mason is an old guy with a genius for technology and super science who may or may not have been secretly financed by Dr. Doom, mm -hmm. because Doom just sows problems for American superheroes just to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, sure. Here's a couple of billion dollars. Start making supervillain equipment and just give it to whoever walks through the door. I'll sit back and watch. God, Doom is amazing. <laughs> Here is an incomplete list of supervillains that Mason has definitely made stuff for. Ready? Mm -hmm. Mysterio. Kingpin, because Kingpin wanted to rebuild the Spider-Mobile. Don't ask, I'm not explaining it. Rocket Racer's rocket-powered skateboard. Goldbug's bug ship. Whirlwind, who is a mutant but needed better armor. Diamondback needed new and better throwing diamonds. Grim Reaper's scythe was made by the Tinkerer. Grizzly's exoskeleton and grizzly suit, also don't ask. The Beetle. Black Cat, Jack-O-Lantern, Owl, the Animan, the First Jester, the Constrictor, and I shit you not, many more are all running around with equipment made by the Tinkerer. Wow. The very idea of the Tinkerer is a national treasure and the gift that keeps on giving to the Marvel Universe. The MCU needs no one more than it needs the Tinkerer. 
I submit to you. <laughs> well, I love it. That sounds fascinating. Um, it's a, that's a really great history and really interesting with Peter Parker being that kind of angry guy, you know, um, which which is a very we've seen kind of like the dangerous culmination of that kind of anger now. Um, yeah, we really, yeah. yes. No, I think they made the right call, obviously, for the MCU, just even in the way that our culture has drifted since Amazing Spider-Man came mm-hmm. out. And even Amazing Spider-Man, which is a much angrier Peter than we've really had on screen before, yeah. still, you know, smooths himself out by the end of the movie, mm-hmm. which is also a good choice. I like it does make sense that he starts out in a very angry put upon place. Mm-hmm. His life is not great, you know? Yeah. Um, no, that's tough. And they play up his abandonment issues quite a bit in Amazing Spider-Man also. Like he's old enough to remember his parents leaving, mm-hmm. which was not necessarily the case in the comic books. Kind of depends on who you ask. Yeah. Oh god, really interesting. All right, also fascinating about Spider-Man is the whole like production and rights history, which is oh, kind really of insane. <laughs> All right. So Spider-Man Homecoming is the first Spider-Man movie in the MCU, although this incarnation of Peter Parker was introduced to us in Captain America Civil War, where he seemed to appear out of nowhere, which is kind of exactly what he did. <laughs> uh, but the bonus side of that is no origin story that we've seen 8,000 times that we need to see repeated again. We kind of just pick up with Peter Parker already in progress. Um, um, so we've already seen this origin story incarnation um, in three different incarnations in the last 20 years. We got the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man series of the early aughts. We got the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man of the mid-teens. And then the animated Into the Spider-Verse movie from 2018 with the Mi- Miles Morales Spider-Man. Um, and the best Spider-Man movie of all of them, I think, all of them. They're just It was really, really great. I agree, and we will not be taking questions at this time. No, we will not. Uh, Now we've got this official MCU version, this Tom Holland version, this very, very sweet version. Now, why are there so many versions of Spider-Man? Actually, this is kind of interesting. It's basically because money. Um, So this is the information that I have gleaned from Travis Clark's article for Business Insider about all of this. So there will be a link to that in the show notes for anybody who wants more information. But basically, the way it shakes out is this. In 1998, Sony acquired the rights to Spider-Man and 900 related Marvel characters. I guess those are all the villains that the Tinkerer made stuff for. Um, No, you're probably right. Because again, uh, as mentioned on podcasts on Pulp Diction Productions and also other times in this podcast, most superheroes, rogues galleries are garbage. And Spider-Man is one of the three with a good one. So yeah, those 900 are all of the A-listers through Z-listers and he's got a bunch. Oh my God, I know. (laughs) It's fascinating to me. So the thing that's that's interesting about this is that this deal is active as long as Sony releases a Spider-Man movie once every 69 months. Why 69 months instead of five years or six? I don't know, just because. Um, So hence, the three Tobey Maguire movies from the early aughts, um, and when they stopped making the kind of money that Sony execs like to see, they refreshed it with an amazing Spider-Man series. That was the Andrew Garfield. Um, And remember, they have to release a Spider-Man movie once every roughly five and a half years or the rights revert. But those movies didn't do as well as they'd hoped. The Amazing Spider-Mans didn't do as well as they'd hoped either. And there was a lot of pressure with the popularity of the MCU for Sony to allow Marvel back into the Spider-Man game. So in 2015, they struck 
a deal with Marvel. Marvel could include Spider-Man in the MCU movies if Sony retained distribution rights and creative control. And the story goes that Amy Pascal, who is to Sony Spider-Man roughly what Kevin Feige is to Marvel, uh, reportedly threw her sandwich at Feige during a meeting. So this was always going to go well. This was good from the beginning. Um, really so, wish I'd been in that office, oh man. Oh my God, Really seriously. wish I knew what caused the sandwich throw. I don't know, but I love it. <laughs> now, Sony is planning two more Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland within the MCU general continuity, but Figgy will not be involved and no other MCU characters will appear or even be referenced. And I'm telling you, because money. I don't know. All that stuff is weird, but it's it's really really interesting. Sony is has con- creative control over these stories. They're they're within the MCU, like they're canonically part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but nobody from Marvel can even touch any of this material. They're not going to work with Marvel again. And you know what? Once again, I got to say there's a big bad boyfriend vibe. People work with MCU and then they're like fuck that noise and they walk away. So That's really interesting. I also feel like Sony is maybe not the best significant other in this. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, Marvel's got a track record of being a bad boyfriend, but I feel like Sony's also like, no, it's my way. And, you know. Oh, I'm sure. But I do kind of like a more independent Spider-Man. I honestly have decided that most of the things that initially annoyed me about MCU Spidey are features, not bugs. Like it took me a minute, but I did it. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I also really prefer Spider-Man on his own, like as a a loner that no one is going to show up and help. That's where the meat is for me. So it's, uh, we'll see how it goes, but I'm tentatively optimistic. It's, it's really kind of fun. And it's, it's just like, I'm fascinated by all of this, you know, um, because these stories are so intertwined. Of course, Spider-Man, you know, this Tom Holland version of Spider-Man was huge in Endgame and Infinity War, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in this whole thing. Um, but Spider-Man Homecoming, the first full feature independent Spider-Man movie, was released on July 7th, 2017. It was directed by John Watts, who returned to direct Spider-Man Far From Home in 2019 and is slated to direct the next Spider-Man movie. So it seems like... Watts and Sony are having a pretty good uh, relationship, but he is not involved in anything else with the MCU at all. Um, This movie was written by, you know, I have this thing where like, you know, any more than one writer on a story usually tends to be a problem. Now, writing team, because they share a vision and work together, counts as one. We have three writing teams working on this screenplay. We have Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. We have John Watts and Christopher Ford. And we have Chris McKenna and Eric Summer. So that's three sets of writing teams, um, which is a lot. And, you know, of course, based on characters created by Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. So we've had kind of a lot of people playing around in the creative soup here, um, which makes this somewhat interesting. It actually explains some of the things that we're going to talk about as we have this discussion about this movie. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the box office was $882 million with a budget of $175 million, so the profit around seven. 100 million, which is not bad by MCU standards, uh, but also they're going to want more coming from the later movies uh, from Spider-Man because Sony gets to the point where they're like, well, you're not making me enough money, so we got to redo this, and 
that's where things get really interesting. So what's what you may find fascinating, Lonnie, yes. is that this whole Spider-Man movie drama is mm-hmm. actually my own personal first brush with the idea of rights yeah. and copyright and distribution rights and how movies get made. Because you said that whole thing got sold back in 1998. It's actually more complicated than that. Oh my Spider-Man's goodness. rights actually get more complicated starting in the 70s because there was a short-lived Spider-Man TV show, like live oh, yeah. action TV mm-hmm. show. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not great. I don't <laughs> necessarily recommend it. And I mentioned, I've mentioned before that like comics journalism was kind of a thing in the early mm-hmm. 2000s. Mm-hmm. It was also sort of a thing, but only in print because we didn't have the internet in the same way uh-huh. yet in the late 90s. And I read multiple articles in Wizard Magazine. I'm so sorry, everybody. I read <laughs> Wizard Magazine. I was in middle school. I don't know how else to justify that behavior. Uh-huh. Uh, but multiple articles on the shifting rights and control. So legit, Spider-Man's my first brush with the fuckery of copyright and distribution oh, rights. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, that is a rabbit hole, definitely. You know, I read one article and I was fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy didn't even tell you about the like mid seventies live pre- action Spider Man show. Yeah, I think if it, if it was, it was really about Marvel and Sony and this whole like weird marriage that has happened here. Um, so I think that they were just focusing on that most like the latest you know round of rights you know fuck wittery that has been going on with this movie. And I will say that sale in 1998 actually kept the doors of Marvel Comics open because they were going through bankruptcy at the time. So yeah, so they, and, they were not in the best position when they made that choice. Interesting. Oh God, it's so fascinating. Um, all right. So anyway, in this movie, let's go back. You know, down into just the fiction of Spider-Man: Homecoming. Right. <laughs> Narrow our view. Come in here. No right. more metatextual things. I'm here. I'm here for it. We're, we're right. pulling. We're pulling into the fiction, into the narrative of this movie. Um, so. Overall, now, Joshua, you have so much more experience with the various spiders man, you know, that have been out there. Um, <laughs> I think we can say Spider-Man. Spider-Man. I think we're OK with sure, that. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, so how, how do you feel about this movie, um, especially compared to like, I mean, I've seen the Tobey Maguire. I've seen Spider-Man 2, I think, I like a couple, but I haven't seen all of them and I'm not as invested as you. So I'm really interested to like know how you feel about this incarnation versus the other ones. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's try not to make this too long, but I kind of have two sets of feelings because okay. I have the feeling that I had when it came out mm-hmm. and then where I've drifted to after more MCU. Mm-hmm. And for a little backstory, Spider-Man was actually my A number one favorite superhero until I was into my teens. Mm-hmm. So I, I loved him. And when my son came along, just because of the vagaries of how movies came out, everybody bought him a bunch of Spider-Man stuff because of Spider-Man 3 is mm-hmm. about the same age as him. And so he grew up with Spider-Man being his favorite superhero for a really long time Mm -hmm. until just like his old man almost I shifted to Batman and he shifted to Robin fantastic anyway so there's a lot of Spider-Man feelings in this house sure Mm -hmm. and if I'm honest I don't let let me rephrase past me did not love this incarnation of Spider-Man I Uh thought this movie was was pretty enjoyable Mm -hmm. right but like I kind of tipped my hand earlier, I like a more independent Spider-Man. I like mm-hmm. a Spider-Man that's in the Marvel Universe, but not entirely of it, because yeah. most of people's response to him is based on 
blasts of negative PR that aren't his fault, you mm-hmm. know, in any way. Um, I've mentioned before that it's a fine Marvel tradition that all superheroes fight before they team up. And that's largely because of a book called Marvel Team Up that starred mm-hmm. Spider-Man and somebody. Mm-hmm. It was always Spider-Man and somebody. And it almost always started with a fight because if they hadn't met him before, they thought he was a bad guy <laughs> every time. And during Civil War, I mentioned when he un- unmasked himself and Peter says, I've been Spider-Man since I was 15. I realized he's the elder state of the Marvel Universe at mm-hmm. 30. Oh, right. Man. So, I, yeah. so being this much under Tony's shadow and being this tied up in the MCU right from jump, sure. I didn't love it at mm-hmm. first. Um, I have grown to accept that as, as I said earlier, a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. So even if it's not my favorite take, it's a take that I can you know live a little more comfortably with now than I did when the movie first came out. I think it's actually a really interesting thing because what there is of the MCU in here is not... Is, is kind of textually being acknowledged is not that great. I mean, Tony Stark is awful, right? This is definitely like I'd been arguing that Tony Stark is the greatest villain of the MCU mm-hmm. for a while. But mm-hmm. I really felt like between Age of Ultron and this movie, I was like, my case is rested. I don't understand why you're all still arguing with me. Right. Tony Stark is a protagonist. He's a protagonist. We're in his POV. We we follow his goals through a lot of these movies, but he is not a hero. And there's a big difference between that. Like a hero is your good guy. And often we see heroes and um, protagonists being the same thing and antagonists and villains being the same thing. But that is not necessarily the case. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. be that way. Um, and so I find it really interesting um, because throughout all fiction, like it doesn't absolutely doesn't have to be that way. Normally, we find ourselves wanting to identify with the good guy, and so we have heroes as protagonists, and we tend to align them that way. But for it to be narratively legit doesn't have to be that way. But I'm interested, though, in superhero fiction, does it have to be that way? I mean, isn't being the good guy like a huge part of being a protagonist within a superhero story? Are, are you able to separate those roles out um, as, as like uh, readily in superhero fiction as you are in regular fiction? As you can imagine, I have a lot of feelings about this question. Um, I am going to say that, yes, in superhero fiction, protagonists should be heroes and Mm -hmm. antagonists should be at least primary antagonists should be villains. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to put an asterisk and one of those little cross symbols next to this. So let's Mm -hmm. deal with the cross symbol because it's easier. When I say primary antagonist, I want to think about people like J. Jonah Jameson, Mm -hmm. not villainous per se, but definitely not a good dude and always an almost always an antagonist Mm -hmm. right to Peter. Um, Now, the asterisk is the thing that I just said is always true, does not always have to be true. But Mm -hmm. I think that it has to be true most of the time. Or the exceptions don't work, right? Like, I love a story about the Daughters of the Dragon where they wind up teaming up with a bunch of the super criminals Mm -hmm. that they bailed out of jail as, you know, as bail bonds women, right? Mm -hmm. But because they stumbled into something that was so bad, even they were like, we can't let this happen, you know? Mm -hmm. But that only works because they're the heels in every other story, you Mm -hmm. know? And I don't want to talk at all about 
stuff like the Punisher where I'm like, wow, oh, angry white man with gun is maybe the protagonist, but is not going to be the hero as far as I'm right. concerned. Mm-hmm. Ne- Netflix may change my mind. I'm told it mm-hmm. might change my mind, but we'll see. So it's just and that whole like anti-hero business that came out in the 90s where mm-hmm. Batman got even darker and then he became a whole different person who was prepared to snap necks and all that stuff. It's a bad legacy, in my opinion, and it leads to stuff like Man of Steel, where it's just mm-hmm. we take the single most heroic and optimistic optimistic character that has ever existed in fiction and turn him into a murderer. Uh, You know, it's not Mm -hmm. good. So, yeah, I think almost every time the protagonist has to be a hero in a superhero story. Look at it, the title. They're superheroes. Right. Right. So that's what I think. I think that's kind of what you go to like superhero stories for is some clarity on the nature of good and evil. Right. I mean, yes. is that part of it? You know, I would say definitely. Yes. All I right. Mean, I'm I'm not necessarily the only person saying this, and I'm definitely not the only person. Like there are plenty of people arguing the opposite, mm-hmm. um, and, and but they're usually arguing from those exceptions, yeah. right? That mm-hmm. are so good that we want to, you know, we want to say, look at this exception. That means they can all be this way. And I'm like, they really can't. They, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, because I mean, Watchmen the, is not really nature. a superhero story. It's a mystery man story. But even so, Watchmen only works because it's deconstructing the idea of the superhero. Right. Right. Largely right. by putting it in a very realistic context where being a superhero doesn't work because there are genre rules. Right. No, I think that's really, really interesting. Um, so I find it, I find Tony Stark an interest because there, there are okay, there are times where you have somebody who's acting villainous, right? But are presented as heroes, and so there's a little bit of that cognitive dissonance in that we in the 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 story itself, the story world itself, the storytellers are refusing to acknowledge that this protagonist who is being presented as heroic is actually not behaving in a heroic way that mm-hmm. creates some cog- that creates some cognitive dissonance um, and that also sends the message that because our good guy quote unquote is doing these things therefore these things are good right Tony Stark is a big problem with that because the MCU I believe does view him as heroic but he is giving a murder suit to a child um, <laughs> and that is just one of many bad things that Tony Stark has been doing but in this particular instance, that's the one that get that rings the biggest bells for me. You know, um, there are lots of things that he does that are assholery, you know, because he's Tony Stark and he's and he is acknowledged as an asshole. Like, I think that we right. we cover yes. that pretty well. But he's also portrayed as a hero. Here he is giving a 15-year-old kid a suit that is capable of murder. And the thing that you don't want to do to a 15-year-old kid is say it is okay to kill people, right? Right. Um, What I find really beautiful about this movie, and I don't know if textually, and this is the thing, like textually it's not clear if this is a deliberate like demarcation that's being drawn because i think that tony stark is still being presented even with everything in this movie as a hero um but there is this conflict you know between who peter is and what we've seen in the rest of the mcu that peter uh sticks his villains to walls and leaves a note on them for the police to handle <laughs> right right yes. he doesn't kill them 
because they're doing bad things. In the MCU, and specifically with Tony, I mean, Tony comes from a weapons background. Like, his whole worldview is about annihilation, right? You got a problem, go kill it, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so he decides who gets to live and who dies. And he, once somebody is, quote unquote, bad enough in Tony Stark's worldview, then it is okay to murder them. And we see that not just in Tony Stark, but we see that we talked about that in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. The unbelievable body count. The way in which if we decide that this group of people, and it wasn't even just like, because some of the the Ravagers and Guardians 2 were just following along. They were just part of the group, right? You know, but Mm -hmm. Yondu's little, you know, red arrow just freaking annihilated all of them, you know, sliced them all down without discrimination because they were part of a group that we decided was bad. All of that is disturbing. Like, it's troubling, you know? Yes, um, yeah. And it's one thing if you are in a situation where they are going to kill you if you don't kill them. Um, and I think in those circumstances that we have a self-defense argument, there's a reason why that is a legal argument, why that is a justification. If someone is going to die, you know, if somebody's going to kill you, then, you know, you have to kill them. Or if somebody's going to kill a lot of people, then you have to kill that one person who is at the heart of that, you know. But Spidey chooses to incapacitate Uh, Which is something that will also stop somebody from killing people until you get enough people on them to permanently stop them by putting them in the back of a police car and putting them in a jail cell, keeping them contained and letting the justice system deal with them. Right. Um, So I find this to be one of the things in the movie that stood out to me the most in which I found personally the most hopeful that there was some sense that this was a discussion that needed to be had within the MCU where we see such tremendous. Tremendous. I mean, forget, you know, killing everybody who is associated with the bad guy. Like, right, you know, just murdering the hell out of everybody. But like such a tremendous amount of casual collateral damage to innocent, you know, populations. Mm-hmm. People who just yeah. happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, so I kind of love that we are, you know, that, that Tony Stark gives this kid a murder suit and that he does not choose to murder. That he, that he has, is horrified by the fact that it's a murder suit. That in it's fact. a murder suit, exactly. Um, and that he is, he incapacitates the villains, you know, that he does not kill them. And that he generally, whenever he is given, aside from the beginning where he's still high on the Civil War experience that we just saw him have, um, and he was very excited to be fighting as part of the, um, you know, part of the Avengers. Um, but then he comes back and he's still hero worshiping Tony Stark. But when it comes right down to it, he rejects what Tony Stark gives him all the way through this movie. And I think that that is a really interesting place to be. Is that a deliberate philosophical choice or are they just trying to create some conflict? Because I am not certain that the MCU as a whole is, is recognizing Tony as being bad or is this a, sly passive that passive aggressive directly aggressive slap at the mcu from (laughs) sony i mean when we talk about the metatextual influences at play here right i mean is that that would be really interesting yeah i mean i think that i was kind of feeling like it was purposeful by one of the writing teams, mm, you know, yes. but maybe not all of the writing teams, which is very a like metatextual and guessing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, 
let me let me take a minute to say I think that where the MCU winds up as far mm-hmm. as murdering people is largely an accident of which movies they started with. Yeah. And then the unwillingness to let Tony Stark remain on the trajectory that his own movies put him on. Yeah. Okay. Now, so one of those is an accident and one of those is purposeful. And what I mean by the accident is we start out with Tony Stark who is uh who has a face turn. Yeah. He starts out as a arms dealing shithead and Mm -hmm. turns into a guy who thinks he can use big weapons to do good. Mm -hmm. By the second movie, he's realizing that's not actually how big weapons work. And by the third movie, he's like, no more big weapons for anybody, including me. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't let him stay on that trajectory. They let it drift back to a place that seems to ratify where he started in the first movie. So the first part of that's an accident. We're going to start with Iron Man because nobody else wants to make an Iron Man movie. That's literally why they did it. Mm -hmm. The next movie they do is Thor. Mm -hmm. Thor is a fantasy superhero. Sometimes there are monsters, like literal monsters in fantasy stories kill literal monsters. They're mm-hmm. they're animals, essentially, mm-hmm. just like un- irredeemable animals, you know? Yeah. So there's some of that, like, mixed into the fantasy aspects of Thor being the second movie. Our third movie is a superhero war movie. Mm-hmm. By definition, wars got rules where people have to die, and also they're mostly shooting... Nazis or pseudo Nazis, and uh, I'm kind of okay with it. And who are actively trying to kill you at the moment, and there are no right. innocent civilians in the war zone, um, you know, so, or at least m- many fewer, you know. Um, so, now, yeah. I think that's the accident, right? Mm-hmm. Like somebody should have realized that that was going to become a problem, and nobody right. did because they were too busy, like sleeping on piles of $100 of, bills. Yes, you know? exactly. Merry, merry bushels of cash. Yes. Yeah. So, anyway, I I just wanted to say that because a lot of times I come down very hard on Tony Stark and the MCU's feel as a whole being mm-hmm. too married to the military industrial complex. And I yep. stand by that. But I don't necessarily think that it was anybody waking up one day and being like, you know what? All our heroes should murder dudes. Nevertheless, we're here. All our heroes murder dudes. It's almost worse to not have yeah, it be that deliberate it's an because, because it means that it's so ingrained in our uh, mentality that we don't yes. see it. You know, the things, yes. that, the things that we are trained through our culture, and trust me when I say our stories are our culture. They are a mirror that reflect us back at ourselves. Um, when we, through our culture, have these stories that say this is the way things are, not just that that's the way they are, but that's the way they're supposed to be, when we fail to question these things. Like, I think you're right. I think one of these writing teams, probably an earlier writing team, was very deliberately doing that. And then yes. the other writing teams came in and either didn't have a consciousness of it or were trying to erase it, but you can still see the original tracing underneath. So mm-hmm. some of it, I think, is deliberate, and some of it is is like, you know, spackling over that so that you can't see it. You know, and that's what makes the question come up. Like here we have Peter deliberately incapacitating these guys and leaving them for the police. Right. He's doing the right thing. He's not killing anybody, you know, unless he has absolutely no other choice. And what that does is it shines a huge light on the rest of our MCU heroes who usually killing is like the first place they go. And I'll say, actually, in this movie, at least, Mm -hmm. Peter does not even take the out of and I have no other choice because there are multiple times in the big finish when just snapping Vulture's neck would have made everything a lot simpler. And he never does it. And in fact, carries him out of the explosion. Yes. Because that's the right thing to do. And carries him out when he knows Peter's identity. 
which is extremely dangerous, right? But Peter doesn't, we don't even see Peter struggle with that at all. He doesn't even hesitate to save that life. Right. And And that is extremely fundamental to me in my conception of superheroes. I don't mm-hmm. understand outside of the, some of the accidents of storytelling that happened with how the MCU came together in a very mm-hmm. slapdash haphazard fashion outside of those accidents. I do not understand why we keep portraying it as very difficult to decide not to murder people. Yeah, I don't get it. It's not that hard to not murder people. I don't murder people every day. And I'm going to tell you some of the people I run into have it coming. I'm just <laughs> right. Except for that, you know, that it's not your job to decide who lives and who dies, right? Uh, Um, Exactly. Yeah, so I I find it interesting because I think that we have a culture that is very severe that way and that does believe that in some cases we have the right to decide who lives and who dies. We have the right to decide who's bad, who's evil, um, who doesn't deserve to be considered human. Um, And that's something that is deeply, deeply ingrained into our society in a lot of ways uh, that don't even necessarily always end up in murder, um, but that often sometimes do, you know. So um, so I find that really really interesting. I find this um, wonderful, you know, respect that uh, Peter has for all human life to be so refreshing. It's one of those moments where you didn't realize how much like the, the what was going on was hurting until you see it not happening and then you're like yeah. oh it's okay you know because in all That's of these fascinating movies yeah. oh mm-hmm. because I really came from the other direction where mm-hmm. I was like boy I wish they'd stop murdering people you know yeah. like that really I noticed the hurt and then this was just like a cool bomb and it's really fascinating to hear you say that you know because you're not as enmeshed in the genre as I am right. of course mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely fascinating and actually kind of hopeful to me to hear you say, oh, I didn't realize how bad it was until they stopped doing it. Until they stopped doing it. Well, yeah, I mean, as a woman, I'm used to getting hit by my media. Like I'm true. used to, I'm Very used to true. taking slaps on a regular basis, and so at a certain point, you kind of just accept it. You kind of go in expecting it, you know. And then when yeah. it doesn't happen, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I just didn't. That's how I felt watching Black Panther. I just didn't get slapped as a woman yes, watching Black Panther. Yes. This is such an unusual and wonderful experience, you know. Um, <laughs> and then it makes you realize, looking back, uh, the the number of things that you accept simply because you have been a frog slowly boiling in this from the mm-hmm. beginning, right? You know, because it's culture. We're all we're all boiling frogs in this culture, and sometimes it takes oh, it takes the water cooling down to realize how hot it was in the first place, you know. Yes. Um, So here we are with this, you know, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I mean, I love Peter's desire to work with the Avengers in the beginning that he gets what he wants at the end and he rejects it. Um, I love that whole trajectory with him. But again, I don't feel like um, textually, like all of the writers involved understood exactly what that meant or played into that as much as they should have because that is actually a really nice turn give you know you want to torture your character give them what they want you know yes. um, so here he gets exactly what he wants but by that time he's had enough personal growth after being you know given a murder suit and then neglected by his mentor <laughs> you know oh um, okay can we let's digress for just a minute because yes. I want to point that out as much as I hate the murder suit yes. and honestly without being spoilery that problem is going to continue into the sequel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it rears its head in Endgame. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm salty about it. Yeah. But 
as much as I hate all of that murder suit shit, as a parent, and I mean, you ought to be able to recognize when children are being abused without being a parent, but I'm right. just being honest that it really cuts me to my core to watch Happy and Tony be abusive surrogate parents to this child who has lost three parents yeah. already. Mm-hmm. I want to punch, the, you want to talk about perfect teeth getting punched in? I will go to town <laughs> on behalf of this poor 15 year old boy who just wants a dad to love him him and not die and these two assholes are like i don't have time for you i don't have time for you let me dress you down and then to have tony position it at the end of the movie as if his abuse was the thing that raised peter to the next level where he's ready to be an avenger fuck you people who wrote that stuff i mean it that's bad that is okay i'm sorry i'm legitimately angry about that i'm gonna fan myself a little bit and then we can go back to talking about this movie no do not apologize i appreciate that (laughs) anger and i hard hard co-sign that anger um i do love that peter is able to recognize that this isn't what he wants recognize that he is better than tony um and i think i well okay I read it as recognition that he is better than Tony. I believe that he is better than Tony, and I want him to know that desperately. <laughs> yes. I don't know that textually we get that confirmation, but that's I want when he turns around and walks away. I want him. To, I want it to be because I am better than this shit. You know, yes. I don't need yeah. you. You know, um, I, I, so I don't I like think that. it's textual enough either. But uh, head cannon is the most powerful cannon. There so. you go. There you go. <laughs> It's good. It's good. Um, So Tony is a very interesting figure here um, and a real problem uh, when he's presented as a cutesy hero at the end, you know, claiming credit for Peter being such a good kid and being ready and all that kind of stuff. Um, But then on the opposite end, we've got our actual villain, Vulture, who is a better father. You he know? really is. He yeah. really is. He even gives Pete an out. Yeah. Like, like, it's not, this does not make him a good person. Like, there should be no forgiveness for Vulture. And of course, Peter was right to not take that out. Yes. But I do think that there is something to the fact that he is at his core. Adrian Toomes is a better dad than yeah. Tony Stark could ever hope to be. You yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he is a better dad. He's a better he's a better person all around. I mean, he's okay. He's a bad guy. He's doing bad things. He's, you know, helping out villains. Um, But, you know, we we find out that he's doing this in the context of, you know, he was an ordinary guy who got screwed over by, by the way, Tony Stark. Let's not forget that Tony Stark. And I actually really like this. Tony Stark, by taking over the business that Toombs was doing. Right. And using mm-hmm. the destruction that he caused to turn a tidy profit for himself. Right. Indeed. Which is which is super gross. Um, takes and away. a little too real. In a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just too yeah. much like real life. It's not too much like real life. It's perfect because this is what I always say, like take something from real life and then turn it into a problem superheroes can deal with. Yes. That's what this is. Rich mm-hmm. people do destructive shit and then they build a company to fix the destructive shit and they profit both destroying things and rebuilding them and then try to look like philanthropists in the process. Exactly. Man, and Vulture's blue collar argument for Peter joining him at the end, like in Mm -hmm. in the the warehouse space, Mm -hmm. rings more true to me than probably anything Tony Stark says in any movie ever. 
Yeah. You know? So and I it's, mean, it's powerful stuff. I think. I mean, Vulture's a villain. Like, I'm not going to say he's not a villain, but yes, Tony Stark absolutely. is actually the thing that created this villain. You know, yep. um, so I think that there's something to that that is really thematically crunchy for me. And I like it. I like it a lot. Um, yes. I like that it's not some random rich guy, that it is Tony fucking Stark that does this, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, you know, Vulture doesn't really handle it well or appropriately but he's you know he's angry and he wants to do right by his family he wants to care for his family and the fact that that's the motivation for him you know um is is a really nice motivation i mean you know granted like an antagonist really only has to do one thing they have to block the protagonist right the protagonist is trying to keep things safe and the antagonist is stirring shit up right Mm -hmm. um so so we have that and that's really all you need but when you have an antagonist and a villain who who also has elements to who they are that you can identify with and that you can look at, you know, the, the, the dividing line between hero and villain can sometimes be just a matter of a few inches, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what you will and what you will not do, you know. And here we have Vulture who is trying to kill this kid, right? But also tried to give him, like, when he recognized Peter, he tried to give him, he's like, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. He tried to give him, he's like, you saved my kid, so I'm giving you a chance, you know? There is something honorable in that. There's really something honorable in the fact that when he goes to prison, when Peter has put his ass in jail and he is now separated from his family, he chooses to protect Peter's identity. Yeah. Yeah. That is some serious, complex villain shit. And I am here for it. I love it. I think that Toombs in this film really understands Mm -hmm. that he was not doing the right thing, but he still felt justified in it. And that's why he's still prepared. He believes Peter did the right thing in stopping him. He can understand how this happened Mm -hmm. and therefore protects Peter. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth pointing out that I'm honestly fine with about three quarters of Toombs's plan. The yeah. stealing from S.H.I.E.L.D. or the CIA, I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. Stealing from Tony Stark, do it more. <laughs> turn turn that technology into really cool shit, I'm down with that. But then when it just becomes weapons that he's selling to criminals, that's the place where it breaks down. Exactly. For me, that plan does not break down until the final stage. I mm-hmm. would join the crew up until yeah. that point. Yeah, Uh, it's it's great. And not for nothing. He's basically a smaller operation of Tony Stark and Stark International from the first Iron Man movie. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, Um, although he is deliberately, you know, Tony was raised in it. You know, so he did like, I mean, Tony should have known better in a lot of ways. But when you're raised in something, again, you may not see it. And so when we have Tony's face turn, that's really meaningful, right? Because that's the moment where you realize that Mm -hmm. everything you've done up until that point has been bullshit and you got to turn it around, you know? Um, So there's a lot of stuff actually that in Tony's whole story, there's a lot of stuff actually that I do like. It's our inability to, it's pushing it past the line between hero and villain and not recognizing where he is on that spectrum that becomes a problem, right? Um, And Toombs honestly throws that in extremely stark relief for me. The the parallels between these two men and where they are the same, but where Mm -hmm. they differ, just showing just a lot of chinks in the armor of the MCU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Vulture's basically... <laughs> and Iron Man. Sorry. Pardon the pun. 
<laughs> yeah, the big difference is that uh, Vulture doesn't have a enough money to kind of uh, scrub the moral yes. question out, you know, um, yes. to distance himself. Enough money to put between him and the moral question, I think. Um, so I think that that's really interesting. And I, I also really like that Vulture and Tony Stark are somewhat dark reflections of each other, except that we don't call like textually recognize that, which makes right. it uh, makes it a little bit uncomfortable to be in that space as long as we're not recognizing exactly why Tony is a big problem too. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that that was really good. I liked where they went with it. I love like just the general visual design of everything that they did. I love the spiky yes. suit. I love the eyes, like the facial expressions that he can do in the suit. <laughs> I love, you know me and technology, like even if it's a murder suit, I'm still going to kind of love it if it's high tech. <laughs> well, and I think that so so I look behind the curtain. We actually watched this movie together, and yes, I think that did. you were particularly entertained to discover that there's no explanation for his eyes making facial expressions <laughs> in the comics, but they do it all the time anyway. Right, and so it's right. kind of fun that they gave an actual techno- technological reason in the movies for him to do a thing that artists were just quietly doing and hoping nobody called them on for right. decades. Well, your iPhone can do it now, right? You know, so That's you true. get a little emoji or whatever, and you can do that now. So, I mean, we have the technology. Might as well explain it now. Um, but it is. It's very, very cool. It's very, very fun. I love the vulture. Um, I love the the guy, what is it, the shocker, you know, with his little fist can in there. <laughs> Not one, but two shockers we have <laughs> yeah, right there. There you go. Um, so, I mean, they're really, really fun. Like, it's just the technology of it is fun. The design of it is fun. I love the vulture's design. I think that that's really cool. I love the way that they made him look. Um, I love the the nature of that suit. I just, I think the whole thing is really, really cool. So, I enjoyed, uh, um, like, all of that stuff. Um, so, we get down to our supporting players. Now, we've talked a lot about all these other characters that yes. are very important in this movie. And we have some supporting players that we really like and want to talk about, too. But before we move on, this is a Spider-Man movie. <laughs> Let's talk about Peter Parker a little bit. All I right. find it amazing that they decided so whole hog to do this level of high school shenanigans, right? Yeah. I mean, it was in the title, Homecoming. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. and he spends almost time, no time at the dance. And we also know that that's a metatextual reference to Spider-Man coming home to the MCU. <laughs> right, right. Insert mm-hmm. jerk off motion again. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I like how hard they went for that. His problems outside of being Spider-Man are high school problems. Yeah. And in the end... His girlfriend's dad who hates him is also the villain who hates him. And that is pure metaphorical coming of age stuff right there. Mm -hmm. So um, and I really like that they have a much nicer sweet. Again, I enjoyed my turn of Angry Peter and Amazing Spider-Man. But where we are now, you know, culturally and all Mm -hmm. that, I I really appreciate that they gave him one friend. You know, he's still not popular, but he has one friend and Mm -hmm. other people notice him because he's such an impressive human being. They may not feel like they can like squander their social capital on Mm -hmm. it, but they recognize him as, you know, someone of import, like Mm -hmm. somebody worth respecting, Um, putting him and the whole situation into a STEM focused school, I think, Mm -hmm. is both appropriate for the character and explain some of this social 
interaction that they have, mm-hmm. but also makes sense as far as where our culture has drifted. There's yeah. a lot of really great Peter Parker decisions going on in this movie. Um, high five. Good job, friends. You know. <laughs> well, I love it. And I love Tom Holland um, yes. as Peter Parker. He has this innate sweetness to him. Um, that makes him really just enjoyable. Like every time you see him, we open up with, you know, his perspective on the Civil War battle, right? You know, so we get this sense of like what he's experiencing and he is so excited, you know, and he's apologizing (laughs) to everybody and he's like, no, I'm really, you know, and he's just, he's so freaking adorable. I also love his quippiness. You know, I love it when he goes in and he stops the, you know, faux Avengers from robbing the ATM, you know, Um, and, you know, and saves the guy and like this whole, like he's just, he's so adorable. And while he's waiting for the big job, you know, he's protecting his neighborhood. He's, you know, he's suiting up and doing what needs to be done even when it means you know that he has to leave the girl that he likes you know Mm -hmm. at this you know leave the party leave the girl that he likes at the dance you know um he's always making the choice to uh to do the right thing and i love that about this particular vision of this character now i wouldn't mind as he gets older you know, I mean, we've been through all of this. I mean, of course, you know, some spoilers for this, but I, I imagine everybody who's listening to this has seen, you know, Endgame. <laughs> but I mean, he dies and loses five years of his life. Yes. You know, like yeah. that's going to affect you like that should affect you, you know. So um, so like coming back to that after everything he's been through in future, um, I'm not sure that I really want to see him go into this white male rage space. Uh, no, which is, no, which is no, a no. different it's it's kind of a different it's a different space from like where I'd like but I wouldn't mind seeing him get a little you know a little darker a little angry a little frustrated you know when you're always doing the right thing and you get shit on constantly I mean that's tough to deal with and I wouldn't mind seeing a little grunge get into that sense of Spider-Man but right here he has just this incredible sweetness to his character. He's so incredibly kind and so sweet and so fun and so funny and so smart. All of these wonderful things that I really enjoy. It is again like that breath of fresh air. Just this, you get to spend all this time with this innate goodness. Um, And I like that. And everybody gets mad at me when I say that all they did was Tobey Maguire 2.0, and you can just die mad about it. That's all they did. It's an improvement on every level, yeah. right? Don't get me wrong, but it's just doing that same thing, mm-hmm. just more and better. And Holland is better at that job. And the script is better at drawing mm-hmm. that out. Uh, it was only recently that I realized evil Peter Parker in Spider-Man 3 was supposed to be a goofball because that's as evil as Peter Parker can manage to be. Right. <laughs> right. But here, every time he steps out of his space as friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, he's mm-hmm. spectacularly bad at it. And I'm yeah. not talking about fighting crime on the ferry. I'm talking about interrogating Donald Glover. Oh, <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness, how cute is that, though? He's so bad at it. He thinks his tiny floating spider robot makes him scarier. It's so wild. But But that's that's the thing. He's so sweet that when he tries to not be sweet, 
it's a failure, even with it's the assistance of his scary murder suit. Right. You know? And the theme yeah. of that story is know yourself and be that thing, because right. uh, <laughs> that's what you do. That's where your strengths are. Um, OK, so talking about some supporting players, we go to just brought right. up Donald Glover. <laughs> we could talk about Aaron Davis as this, you know, this kind of like just basically like sideline story. Although my favorite thing, I think, is when he leaves him there with the car and he's like, wait, I got ice cream in this car. <laughs> Oh, and also, let's point out, as part of my thing, he, yeah. Aaron Davis fails utterly to yes. respond to scary interrogation techniques. Yes. But he says, I'll tell you what you need to know, because when you dropped out, you said, if you're going to shoot somebody, shoot me. Uh-huh. Spider-Man gets the information he needed by mm-hmm. having been nice to somebody who he did not know and did not have any reason to be nice for. And exactly. he just did it because he's a decent person. And Aaron Davis, who is clearly a small time criminal, mm-hmm. responded to that anyway. That's yes. great stuff. Yes. No, it's really nice. I also like the I got a nephew in this neighborhood, which for people who know the comics or have seen like that is Miles Morales. Go, yeah. Go watch you know? your Into the Spider-Verse, friends. Oh, Into the Spider-Verse, y'all. If you haven't seen it yet, just go do that now. Don't waste any time. Go. It's amazing. It's absolutely but wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron Davis is the uncle of... Miles Morales, who Mm -hmm. will, depending on continuity vagary, eventually be Spider-Man. It's great. Yes, exactly. And it's it's a really, really nice reference to pull him in there. Um, So I really, really liked him. Um, One of the issues, though, that I do have with this movie is the way that women are written or rather not written. Um, (laughs) And you know what? Like... It is a literal mixed bag, Lonnie, right? We have a couple of good examples and a couple of not so great examples, right? I think, well, what's the couple? Michelle is basically the only well-written woman, really. Michelle is fantastic, right? Uh Um, I actually really like the approach to Aunt May that they have here. It's everyone else's reaction to her that's the problem. So there is a writing problem with her, but I love her. She's so supportive Mm -hmm. and she's so like... Just pretty obviously doing her best and not always doing great at it. But she's trying, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we're not in her POV, but you can just imagine what it must be like for her having this backpack convert. Like, look, my kid's only 12 Mm -hmm. and I am still like, what do you mean you lost another one? You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I really, really like Aunt May herself, but I really, really don't like how the world reacts to her. Is it worth drawing that distinction? Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. And this is the thing. Like, uh, this movie was all written by men, (laughs) directed by men. Um, And there is a lot of male gaze that is landing on Aunt May, which I find very, very irritating because Aunt May is Marissa Tomei and Marissa Tomei is hot. Right. So because Marissa Tomei has been deemed hot, we do things with her (laughs) that we wouldn't do with a more matronly Aunt May, which is having all of these men comment on how hot she is all the time. And, you know, I mean, Tony Stark objectifies her. Everybody objectifies Aunt May. Now, Aunt May, as herself, is written well. Like, I like her as a character, but I don't like those responses to her. What I also don't like is the fact that, like, if she was sexualized herself, like, If Aunt May, who is a beautiful woman, who is young enough and still has enough years left in her to actually enjoy sex and men, (laughs) if she had agency and was in pursuit and was like, you know, I'm going to go out on a date and I'm going to have some sex and this guy is waking up in my bed and here, let me make you both some breakfast, like that kind of thing, I'd be into it. I'd especially be into it if Aunt May wasn't Marissa Tomei, if she was more matronly and she was still out there fucking. True. Go Aunt May, you get yours, girl, right? I'd be good with that. But the fact is, is that no women have any 
agency in their own sexuality at all, you know, in this movie. Um, now, and, I, I have one question. I have one yes. question in that regard, because I feel like I can kind of see the different writing teams in Aunt May also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it is interesting that she is sexualized so often by the men around her, but she honestly seems largely oblivious to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that is something not not necessarily like I not necessarily that it's affected right that that's mm-hmm. an, an affectation but that that's part of her agency is that she is not looking for some dude to come leer at her and no. therefore she misses it no she's Marissa Tomei she's not a fucking idiot she's been Marissa Tomei her whole life she knows what these men are doing and the fact that she ignores it I don't think is a um, I don't think it's a character choice I think it's that these men think that this isn't a big deal and they don't understand how that feels from the perspective of the woman experiencing it. Uh, Beautiful women go through this shit all the time and they are not that impressed with it. Uh, you know, she's, no, that's she's, yeah. fair. Yeah. I think it's the restaurant scene with her and mm-hmm. Peter that makes me qu- not question this, but really look closely at this because it's in that one that they get free dessert or whatever. And mm-hmm. she seems legitimately flabbergasted that Peter thinks it's the guy liking her, right? Like, she doesn't have any reason to bullshit her nephew. They have a pretty no bullshit. Yeah, you don't go through life looking like Marissa Tomei without knowing why you're getting free ice cream. I'm sorry. So it's more dudes writing women. It's more dudes writing women. And it's so cute that she's beautiful and doesn't know how beautiful she is. Look, that would be possible if men didn't treat beautiful women the way that they treat beautiful women. Oh, fair cop. Look at this. Um, I'm buying into the bullshit. I just did it myself in the nicest way possible, but nevertheless. Okay, fair enough. Very good. Because that's what society is training you to think, because we don't see this through the experience and perspective of women who experience it. And we also see beautiful women as art that is on display for us to enjoy. Right. You know, Um, but beautiful women are humans. Right. And they get treated like this all the time you know um Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna tell you right now some of my best friends are beautiful women i've seen this shit happen and it is not as charming um as you may think or even as flattering as you may think it is you know um so i think that a woman does not go through her life looking like aunt may without also seeing the threat involved in that free ice cream usually ice cream is not free nothing is free and when when men give beautiful women little prizes and presents they expect something in return um so and you know and this happens to like women all in general like regardless of how quote-unquote like classically beautiful you may perceive yourself to be a woman who is actually classically beautiful does have to deal with a lot of this and it feels like that makes everything so much easier for her and she just wanders around being beautiful and gets whatever she wants trust me there is a cost that comes with all of those things um and it is a different kind of cost every time but there's a cost and and a woman who looks like that knows that you know so the fact that it was written from a perspective of somebody who didn't see that you know who didn't recognize that Mm -hmm. um and just made her like innocent and sweet and oblivious and and accepting of all of this because isn't that just nice you know um that's not who aunt may is and aunt may is smarter than that because we see her exhibit intelligence in every other area except this one so um i do like aunt may i love marissa tomei i have absolutely no problem with her being that beautiful i'd like to see her extend a little agency um you know and a little protectiveness of her 
herself because her experiences are going to reflect that, you know, um, what our society actually does to beautiful women and the way that we view and treat beautiful women. Um, so there is that. Um, Liz, I like well enough, you know, um, but she's not, we don't like really do a whole lot with her. She is basically the prize that is batted back and forth between Tombs and Peter, you know? Yeah. Um, I do think I like first and part of second act Liz a yes. lot more because she's not that yet. Like Peter, right. of course, is interested in her, mm-hmm. but does not think he has a chance with her. And he's a good dude, like in right. a real sense. No, no sarcastic trademark there. Like mm-hmm. he's an actual good guy. So he lets it go, you know, mm-hmm. other than maybe staring a little longer than he should. But he's a child and we're working on it. Right. Um, yes. And he, but I like you know, her he as leader. Likes her. Like also. But I think that Peter likes her, though. She is beautiful. Right. You know, so yes. fine. But I don't think that that's why Peter likes her. And I think that that's exactly. what makes this better, that he yes. likes her because of who she is as a person. He's surrounded by beautiful girls in this school. Um, but Liz is smart, you know, but Liz is also damseled. All through, like, no, she's yeah, the... that's why I like her as leader, Liz. Mm-hmm. You know, at the beginning when she's mm-hmm. like, "I read a couple leadership books. We're supposed to rebel now." You know, that right. kind of stuff is adorable and amazing, and shows a real character there. But yeah, but once we get past the midpoint of Act Two, it's one hundred percent damsel all the time. Yeah, she's she's the damsel. She's the one that you know, Tombs is doing this to protect and take care of her, and then you know, Peter is trying to save her, and you know, the fact that we've got his best friend also in that elevator. Right. You know, it's also, you know, like that's that's a reason enough for him to want to say, but we have to damsel the woman while we're at it. Instead of having her be active and, you know, like getting Spider-Man to save these kids that are in the thing or something like that, like give her action, give her something, give her agency. But we don't give agency to women generally in this movie. Uh, Michelle MJ is actually written pretty well. Um, I really do like her. We don't see enough of her, but I like her quite a bit. and I like her all the way through. Um, So she's real good. I love the moment in detention where the coach is like, you don't even have detention. And she's like, I know. I just come here to sketch people in crisis. That'd be you, right? And this um, is you. Oh, my God. The coach. Yeah. Yeah. You thought I meant the kids for just a second. Let me make it clear. Exactly. It's you, coach. <laughs> I like her. I like her a lot. We don't get a lot of her, but I like what we get. Um, and it's nice. Uh, then we also have Betty Brandt, who is basically just your classic pretty blonde, right? And I would not have thought of her at all, except that they very pointed have her with a lower third identifying her as Betty Brant on uh-huh. the TV screen and I have come to learn that if we see a name in print it's because there's MCU provenance there <laughs> so I know I yeah, asked you I was like wait I saw a name in print who is this bitch and you were like okay well let me explain <laughs> yeah yeah Peter's first love interest but apparently she'll never be his love interest on this show or on right. this series she's, of movies which is fine because right she's just because pure redacted for the next movie redacted Redacted, mm-hmm. redacted, redacted. But there's a reason in the next movie she's never going to be Peter's love interest. And that reason is fantastic. We'll talk yeah. about it later. <laughs> but she does have a provenance because we saw her name. I knew that she did. So I picked up on this stuff. She's pure Easter egg. <laughs> but there's also nothing really to her aside from pretty blonde. You know, your standard garden variety, fresh off the, you know, the factory line, pretty blonde. Um, so we don't really do anything with her, but we don't really have to. So, you know, fine, whatever. Um but then we've also got Ned, 
right? And I think yeah. Ned is adorable. I love Ned as the man in the chair. I love Ned as the genre savvy, I want to be your man in the chair guy. <laughs> <laughs> right, like if your main character who is literally a 15 year old nerd that becomes a superhero is not going to be your genre savvy guy, he needs a friend who is. Exactly. So, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I like Ned. Ned is not necessarily the most clever, you know, character in the in the whole run that we've got here. Um, but he he does he does exude genuine goodness, and there's something yeah. about that that I think is so incredibly valuable, especially when we're in a universe that has places where we're where we're real questionable you know where, where yeah. our moral lines are are not clear either in the text or in the meta text you know um so having a a font of genuine uncomplicated goodness um at peter's side is is really nice i just like it whenever he's on screen i feel better about the world and the humans in it and i just appreciate <laughs> that um, I also think that the genuine enthusiasm that he brings mm-hmm. yeah. c- is g- also very good, like similarly mm-hmm. to the goodness, because Peter's conflicted a lot in this movie, and he should be, right? Yes. Like he, sh- mm-hmm. he is in a position to have a lot of conflicting ideals and actual practical to-do lists, you know, mm-hmm. but Ned is always like, oh, you met Captain America? Word? You know, and <laughs> never gets to the point where Peter's like, yes, I also punched him some. I mean, you know, like... Yes. Ned just refuses or never gets the chance to deal with the complicatedness. And I like that naivete and I like that goodness and I like that enthusiasm. Joshua, Spider-Man Homecoming, what's your favorite part? Okay, I know this overlaps with part of your favorite parts, but I have to do it anyway, because Mm -hmm. honestly, when Toombs answers the door at Peter's date, Mm -hmm. in the theater, I literally jumped in my seat. I am a grown ass man. I am a somewhat professional media critic. I have read genre fiction since I was old enough to read. And Mm -hmm. that shit shocked me to my core. I don't know how I could pick anything else as my favorite part. Oh, you know what? It's wonderful. And here's the thing. Um, anybody who's followed my work and me talking about stories, you've heard me talk about the 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 incredible work that that writers will go to to preserve some kind of twist, you know, and they mm-hmm. will put all sorts of scaffolding up around it. And, and there are a lot of times where there are things that are misleading. There are direct lies that will sometimes be told in a story, which, by the way, don't fucking do that. Writers listening to me out there. Don't lie to your audience. Um, Um, But here is a situation where a twist really, really works, Um, because in no way did we ever lie. You know, they did not play their hand where they're like, "Ooh, I've got I'm playing coy with you now. What is going on? Like at no point, you know, is there anything in this movie that contradicts this twist? You know, that makes this twist or is there anything that overly, you know, kind of um, anticipates that twist. Right. So when you get to it and here he is going to the dance because we've separated his superhero life and then his normal kid life, you know, um, as Mm -hmm. much as we can, except that he gets pulled out of normal kid life to, you know, do the superhero stuff. Right. Um, But the fact that, you know, that this guy is her father um, and the fact that this guy knows that Spider-Man saved his daughter right 
that adds this sudden, incredible level of complexity to a story that was already interesting, you know, that was already covering the bases it needed to cover. It's a beautiful, beautiful twist, beautifully executed, um, wonderfully done. And yet the story would still stand without it. The story is not married to that twist. And that's the thing, I think, where it becomes a problem for writers. Writers sometimes get so enamored with the twist that they write the whole story toward that twist and they do whatever it is they need to do for it. The fact that this is a twist that takes an already in progress, complex and interesting story and adds a level of complexity to it. Um, makes it even better, but it was already good to begin with. And it is not dependent upon that twist in order to work. That is excellently, excellently done. And I really appreciate the skill put into that in this movie. Yeah. Do you even want to talk about your other favorite parts? Honestly. Honestly, the tombs reveal is my favorite. The tombs (laughs) reveal is my favorite. But because I had a feeling we would be vying for real estate here, I also picked a couple others. Um, Because I told you it freaked me out when we were watching it. it. And you were like, well, shit, now I got to share this fucking thing with this guy. Oh, that's okay. I don't mind sharing (laughs) stuff with you, baby. It's all good. Um, Okay. I also really like Vulture's uh, whole aesthetic. I love his suit. Um, I think that that's beautifully done. And honestly, I loved Peter when he was stuck in the warehouse and he was going through the training montage. I thought it was just it was just (laughs) cute. And I I love his dedication to learning how to work things. Um, I also find it incredibly funny, although this movie predated the Karen meme uh, (laughs) that his suit is named Karen. I feel like says a thing. Whether it deliberately meant to say a thing or not, I don't. I don't think it did. Um, but the name of Karen, I find just inc- it just it just amuses me every time he says her name. <laughs> he should have programmed a thing into his suit that would call Tony Stark, no matter where Tony Stark was or what he was doing, and called it the "Get the Manager" protocol. So it could be like Karen, protocol. get the manager. <laughs> I will call your manager. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of cute. It's kind of funny. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh and the hashtag is Listen Up A-Holes. This episode of Listen Up A-Holes was brought to you by the Chipperish and Pulp Diction producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Listen Up A-Holes is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our February producers, Sarah, Shelley, Kristen, Alice, Noel, Erica, Abigail, Jonathan, and April. Thank you, producers, and to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, this message is for you. What the hell? You're big now! To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, our Patreon links are in the show notes. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or we will kill you and everyone you love. We'll kill you dead. That's just what I'll do to protect my family. We just saved your life. Now, what do you say? Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, baby. And until then, so, you got detention. (laughs) Ha 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 ha!